this series has been interesting and strenuous. I think I remember telling Trey or someone in the beginning, like, boy, it's going to be amazing if we can do it. Uh, it's going to also be like really a long journey. And it, this, this week has taken it out of me. I have to confess, um, I'm deeply conflicted about today's subject. Uh, I grew up in the mission field among a class of people who I treasure and who some of the excesses of that past I'm embarrassed of. But I grew up among a group of people that I want to hold together in such a way. It, no one wants to be a sexist. And so when we talk about sexism, that's easy flush. No one wants to be that. No one particularly wants to be colonial, right? Nobody storming around, you know, breaking stuff. But when it comes to the subject of evangelism as a, an extension of cultural conquest, this is a very, very interesting needle to try to thread. I'm curious, are there any missionary kids in the room? I'm looking at a few of you. Just self-identify. Any MKs in the room? Come on. Dave's like, handling it back here. Yeah. <laughs> I want something to emerge from this after deconstruction, okay? I want something to come back together after I've disassembled what I've been taught in the way that I would. I want something to survive. What do I mean by this? I mean, I could take you to the living room of people who are, whose kids are in college now, and they would tell you that they know Jesus because my dad moved into their neighborhood. Somehow, there has to be something left of a mission, of a mandate, of a, of a, of a, of a missionary call to go to all places. And yet, at the same time, we have to be honest about some of the ways we have done this so poorly. You know, we walk a fine line as preachers. We basically do our deconstruction in public for all to see. Super uncomfortable sometimes when you get to these subjects where I don't know where I land on this. I don't know where, I don't know how to quite get my feet underneath me. And yet I know that the willingness to look back and speak about our past in honest and vulnerable ways and the willingness to pick new directions, I know that's why you're here. I know that's why you're here. So I know that if we don't do this hard work, there wouldn't be much going on in this place. At the same time, it's, it's conflicted. I'm conflicted today. So I wrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, and I think yesterday for the second time, I ripped out five pages and started over and woke up this morning panicked. Like, what, what's going to happen? I, I was carrying a guitar to the car today because Caesar, I need to let you borrow my guitar, and I thought, maybe we'll just play music. Because every once in a while in the Bible college I went to, when nobody knew what to say, we just played music, and it seemed okay. But I know you're interested. If you're still tracking with us in the dog days of summer, I know you're interested. So the premise of this series has been and remains that there are things in our past, there are isms that we have made space with as people of faith that soon enough crop up and contradict the very gospel that grows in the garden of our inner heart. And here's the danger, y'all. Some things are so close you can't see them. Now that's painfully real for me now because I can't see anything here. Used to be that would be an interesting concept. I can't see my watch here. But there are things in our life that grow so close to our culture and the gospel and the things that sort of uh, are the, the backdrop of our upbringing that, lo and behold, we don't even know they're there. And so that, that fear and that willingness to say we need to do that inner garden work, we need to work that in that space is kind of what this whole series is about, which makes the subject of evangelism a very odd topic to put on the list. I tried to rip it out this morning and it didn't, didn't come out. It stayed there. What could possibly go wrong, ask this question, when people of faith share their, people, share, share their faith with other people? What could possibly go wrong when people cross international borders or interpersonal boundaries or whatever it is? What could possibly go wrong in sharing our faith? 
Where has the way we share the gospel threatened the gospel itself? Now your mind is thinking about history and so is mine. Why does evangelism turn up in a list of nefarious characters like sexism and racism and colonialism? History has shown us some very odd renditions of how to move faith around, some very odd embodiments of how to share faith. But surely sharing faith is, that's got to be something that we do as a church, right? Isn't that our role? Isn't that our job? Isn't that our mandate? Well, indeed, I think it is if we get it right. And that's the key, right? Last week, we talked about colonialism. It's not that hard to look at colonialism and say it's a regretful way to have spread the good news because it wasn't very good. It was mixed with some things. It's not that easy to look at that and say, yeah, I don't feel terribly colonial, except that power structure remains, and we still need to deconstruct that. But I could take you back to a time when a whole doctrine was assembled to justify the taking of what was wanted from those who were unwilling to give it. There was a time when the Dominican priests traveled with the conquistadores, and they would jump off ships, and they would start mowing people down, and the priests are like, this can't happen. These people are people. And so we, they came up with the doctrine. They called it the doctrine of requerimiento. And so here was the requirement. Before you could kill the natives, you had to read them the history of the world. You've heard me mention this. And so off the little wooden boat would jump a friar with a big scroll. They would read a history of the world in Spanish because, of course, nobody spoke that except them. Pretty characteristic of how we do things. And then when the natives resisted the taking of what they thought belonged to the old world Spaniards, Portuguese, English, you fill in the gap. Then, of course, that would be the rationale for taking it anyway. We called that the system of requerimiento. Now, most of us know violence doesn't belong with the gospel like that. We call that genocide. Unfortunate chapters, we're not going to go there again. Most of us know that that's not how evangelism works. Well, let's bring it up into mid-20th century America. You may or may not know this, but the great contribution to sort of the... the, the uh, sort of Christianity as a whole, the great American evangelical contribution is the open-air, stadium-sized evangelistic crusade, right? This is something that begins to happen in America, built almost entirely on a brand new concept, and that is the sinner's prayer that's supposed to move you from the hell ledger to the heaven ledger, right? Just like that one decision. We look back at these events with a little bit of embarrassment, perhaps, first of all, for me, why would you call this a crusade, let's, I know, let's do this, PR people, let's take the worst thing we ever did as Christians and let's name something that. <laughs> you tell me, how far back do we have to trace the roots of Islamophobia in the evangelical church? Well, it might go back to the fact that we named our events, supposedly those events to offer forgiveness and mercy to all, we named them probably the single most humiliating decades or centuries of our history. Not a great idea. But I don't think the worst legacy of crusades as a, it, it would be that. I think there's, there's, a, there's an oversimplification. In fact, there's, there's a reduction of salvation to a momentary decision where all of a sudden, once you do this, now you're saved. And I wonder, history hasn't been terribly kind with that. I don't know if you realize. Most of us will look at this and say, well, that feels a little, at least it's not violent, but feels a little bit like a false representation, right? Like truth in advertising. Like, wait a second, seriously? Here's a quiz for you married people. Does one I do do it? How many I do's have you actually had to say in the last 25 years? It's to the point where it's like, I do, I do, I do, I do, I do already. I do, I did, I, I do, right? Same is true, I think, with salvation. That's not going to be our subject today. 
But there's no way to reduce a life of leaning into the Lordship of Christ into a single moment, is there? Maybe it begins there. Maybe that's the beginning. Maybe that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. But certainly we know it's a lifetime of deciding to lean in the direction of love, to lean in the direction of Jesus. So where the terrible centuries that create the clash that is our world use violence to spread the faith, other centuries we use social pressure and we use momentary transactions and we say, this is it. I don't think that resonates with me completely. Let me tell you how I understood it growing up. This is going to be a little embarrassing. I generally don't talk about this in public, but what the heck. Back in the 80s, we were taught that the only reason Jesus wasn't coming back was because not every soul had heard. As if Swedish baby Jesus has folded arms in heaven waiting for us to do our homework. And we took it serious. We identified a 1040 window. Any takers in the room? You remember what I'm talking about? And so now the calling of God on your life is to figure out how to get from East Tennessee to the 1040 window because everybody needed to know, everybody needed to be offered a chance to be saved. Well, the 1040 window turned out to be very expensive to get to. So we settled for Mexico. And we learned three awkward sentences in Spanish. This is going back to my younger years, girls. I was this dorky. Three sentences. Here's how they went. This is us sharing the gospel. Okay? Number one, ¿Tiene usted a Jesús en su corazón? Do you have Jesus in your heart? So here's how it would go. You knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. And they'd open the door. Do you have Jesus in your heart? The next sentence, ¿Quiere usted aceptarlo? Would you like to accept him? And the final sentence to get you out to extricate you from any further relationship or conversation, I guess, was, esto es todo lo que puedo decir ahora. This is all I can say for now. And we back out. Another check. <laughs> That's a household saved by faith because they shook their head. They're like, what is going on in front of my house? Right? And building on the clear genius of this missiological approach, we decided we'd fill an old garbage school bus that someone had recycled. And so we were going to travel through Mexico and we had a play. We had a drama. We were going to do this everywhere that they told us we, we could do it in many places where they told us we couldn't. And so the name of this, it was bizarre. I wish it was on video, but it, the name of the performance was called Más Allá del Circo, Beyond the Circus. And so here's basically what you have. I know, baby, it's that bad. <laughs> Your, fa your dad, your dad in 110 degrees on the Pacific coast of Mexico putting on full makeup. I was the clown, see? I was the one who was being pulled between cigarettes and Jesus, right? <laughs> Little beer and Jesus, right? I think I could almost do the motions for you live on stage. So we travel everywhere in Mexico and we are talking to ancient people in some places that Spanish isn't even their language and we're presenting the gospel in the form of a 20-minute drama and we're sweating the paint off. I can't even, I can't even. Half of us were smoking cigarettes behind the bus and having a little nip once in a while and we're telling people that rock and roll will cost you your soul. And so this is what we thought was the way to go about it. And you'll be happy to know that I'm a really fast learner and so I went off to that Bible school that taught those sorts of things Got myself on a team headed for Barcelona, Spain, 1992. Here's the thought, right? If you can't afford to go to the whole world, go to the places where the whole world goes. Olympics, 1992. So genius, right? So here's what we did. We got 110 students to raise $3,000 each. I have no idea how you carve out of a grocery budget that consists of ramen noodles and Cheerios, $3,000, but we did it. We went there. We get all the way there. We're like, we got this handled. 110 people, break them up into little teams. There's five translators. Problem is translators speak Spanish. And what do they speak in Barcelona? They speak Catalan. You don't see the humor in that. 
We have now spent months training ourselves to save the world. We're going to the city that the world is going to, and we speak a language that they refuse to speak to us. We didn't understand the history of the five kingdoms of Spain and how it was illegal to speak Catalan in the street under King Franco. And so we show up speaking Spanish, and they're like, that's not happening. They can speak it, but they won't speak it to us. Worse still, you have us at late hours of the night with city maps planning on how are we going to save this city. And so we, like soldiers, we're like generals. We're going to break it off into pieces. You take this sector. You take that sector. Well, in the 90s, the early 90s in Spain, people lived in high-rise buildings. If you're going to go knock on doors, you have to have a way to get inside the building so that you can knock on the doors. And if you don't have that code, you don't knock on doors. And so we, we get our plans, and we go door to gate to gate, and somebody had to check off that the gospel was shared with those buildings. And I don't know who signed that off, or signed off on that, but it wasn't true. This is the evolution of my thinking around evangelism. But here's the deal. I want you to hear me clearly, and I mean this as much as anything. There was so much zeal and pure courage when I was a child. I don't disparage those years. I don't hate that person. Those tactics don't fit. But let me tell you what. You wanted to know me when I was a teenager. Somehow, some way, we had very little to offer to God. But boy, did we offer it as purely as we could. It didn't occur to me yet the reasons why all of that felt like breaking bones. It didn't occur to me yet that there was a deeper rationale for being in relationship with people. I just knew that if Jesus was gonna come back, it was up to me, and I did it with the purest heart. There's no fault to lay at the feet of my parents or the senior missionaries that oversaw all of that. There's no blame to place. Here's the deal, and you just, this won't surprise you. I'm the kind of intense person that if I'm gonna pick something up in the environment, and if you ask me for 10 push-ups, I'm gonna give you 30 and make it look cool. That's who I am. And so in that, that time of my life, what do you do? You take it deadly serious. You put your junk on that bus and you travel those countries and you present the gospel. And all a while, something in me is evolving, telling me this, there's gotta be more. There's gotta be more. But when I take my kids back to those places and we talk about those memories, I don't hate those years. It was a good upbringing. It was a good beginning. I'm proud of the people that we come from. We come from sold out missionary stock, y'all. It's just the way it is. But I hated every second of door to door evangelism. And I've always wondered why. I hated it. It felt insulting to me to knock on a door and quickly introduce myself and hastily move someone to make a checkbox decision of faith. It never felt right to me. I knew there was more. It felt silly and embarrassing to me to travel around beautiful old Mexico going square to square to square presenting this unbelievably unintelligible piece of, don't even call it art. I knew there had to be more. I knew there had to be more. I knew that didn't fit. And the question is this, did I hate it because I was bad at it or did I hate it because there's a deeper way, there's a deeper way? Something about reducing human relationships to 22 seconds in a conversation about heaven and hell has never worked for me. It has just never worked for me. There's got to be more than rushing people into a sinner's prayer. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't feel like what I see Jesus doing in the New Testament. And I don't think it's our mandate. So here's the question for us today. Where do we fall between cultural demolition, colonialism, and the reduction of salvation to a single decision which we know isn't the actual exchange. Where do we fall? That feels like a question worth answering. Our mandate, I think, is what it's always been, to make disciples, to make disciples. Jesus says it this way. 
We call it the Great Commission. Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's for us, Jen. That's a little ad there. Some doubted. That's just so we can feel good in the crowd. Verse 18 says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice, this is no mandate to generate one-off decisions to accept Jesus and move on to the next thing. This is no mandate to conquer or to demolish. This is a mandate to go all places, to leave nowhere out. It's a reminder to allow no prejudice, no nation, no nation, notion of nationalism, no sense of racism, no binary thinking about who God loves and who God hates. This is the, the reminder that none of that belongs in the good news. This is the reminder that the inclusion of all places is the good news. Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, go make disciples, not just converts or believers. Go make disciples. Go do the work. Notice that there's no reference of cultural subjugation or domination. There's no convert the prince and win the kingdom. It's the permission is to go and live. This is not about scaring people with imaginations of hell or Hades or Sheol or the lake of fire or eternal punishment or whatever the heck any of that accumulates to in your mind. This is not about that. This is about the permission to go and live everywhere among everyone. The Great Commission summarized, in my own words, might sound something like this. Jesus gathers his disciples, his followers, and he says, you know the work that I've done? This work you've seen me do? This life you've experienced with me? Go and do this. Go live this way. Go everywhere, to every nation, to every people. Initiate them into these teachings because you are me and I am you. And we're always together in this. The Great Commission is a commitment to use no single cultural reference point as the only one. Hear me, church. We're going to talk about racism next week. And you know what's going to rise in this room? White disgust. We are not accustomed to not being the point of reference. And we're going to do that next week. So I'm just going to encourage you, if you need to take a break, go to Barton Springs and take a dip in the pool. The Great Commission is the commitment to use no culture, no geography, no point of center as the only point of reference. This is Jesus' last words, and what does he say? He says, don't not take it everywhere. Take it all places. The central theme of the gospel is its everywhereness, its every oneness, its every person, its every timeness. When Jesus could have clarified doctrines of heaven, of heaven and hell and how to get to one and avoid the other, when he could have summarized exactly what beliefs made you a Christian, which wouldn't have even existed at the time, instead of doing those things, he reminds them, do exactly what you've seen me do everywhere. He came to announce a very earthy, very earthly, concrete concept. You see, Jesus talked about parties and vineyards and pigs and pearls. He made very little reference to extraterrestrial things where crusades and conquests all of a sudden make sense and offers of heaven and hell in a single moment access to one or the other. Those make sense, but Jesus isn't talking about that. Jesus primarily focuses on things that we can actually understand and observe. And I was lost in my notes yesterday and Caesar's car broke down and we had a long ride and he set me straight. 
He says, you're looking for Luke 14. I'm looking for an image, guys, because I don't want to throw out my upbringing. We were passionate people. We were moved by God to let everything behind. My parents didn't own a house until they were halfway through their 60s. We rented places. We lived on the fly. We did this to be useful to God. I don't want all of it back, but I can't move forward hating where I have come from. What then is our mandate? Give me a word picture. So here's what I've got for you. Luke 14. It's the parable of the great banquet. Begins this way. When one of those at the table with him heard this, the this refers to Jesus basically welcoming cripples and poor and the lepers to, to a banquet in the previous section. He said to Jesus, this man says to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replies, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first says, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please, please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant says, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes, go outside the city and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. If ever there was an image of the kingdom of God and what our role is in it, this works fine for me. It's the image of a banquet table set in the world. It's so powerful, it breathes life. It's the fact that the servant of the host went out to invite all the usual honored guests and could find none that would come. So he lowered it one, rat, one rung on the social ladder and he found a few but it still wasn't full. The role of the church, you guys, is to compel people to come take their place at the table that already has their name on it. Now, you might look at this word and say, why would we be dragging people into banquets? No, no, this word, don't make no mistake. This word compel is what happens when the untouchable and the unclean and the unworthy and the unloved have to somehow believe that they've been invited to a banquet of honor. That's not an easy thing to convince people of. And oh, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. If the church has any role in the world, I'm telling you it has less to do with heaven and hell and it has to do with compelling people. Can you believe it? Can you see it? Can you see how God has pursued you your whole life? There's a place and the banquet won't start without you. That's the role of the church. They needed to be compelled because they can't mentally put themselves on a list of honor. How could they? Look at us. Look around you. For one second, peer into the deep, dark corners of the things you have done that have embarrassed. Think about your life and the mistakes that you have made. Oh, and your name's at a place of honor. Can you believe it? You guys, there are two kinds of people in the world, and there are only two. Those who know how much God loves them and those who don't yet. There's no other kind. It's that simple. Our role is to compel people. These are good news. It's good news to know that there's a place set for you. If you number yourself among us, the broken, the lame, the crippled, the poor, it's good news to know that. This is what I want to know. How do we cross interpersonal boundaries with this news? How do we travel around the globe with this news? How do we reduce that toxic mixture of American evangelical culture and just let this rise? How do we live in places that bear witness to this fact? That's the question 
that I ask. Announcing that there's some magical word formulation available to you that will purchase an insurance plan to get you out of hell is not actually good news. You see, you have to create the market if you've got the, the product in your back pocket. Oh, but by the way, you're going to hell, and if a bus hits you tonight, how many times have we heard this, right? Oh, and it just so happens if you pray this prayer, you can go to heaven. I'm telling you that's not good news. What's good news is that there's a seat with your name on it, and it's always been there, and it's always been waiting for you. Oh, church, what if we spent our effort and our resources preaching the original goodness of humanity instead of its original sin? What if we went around the world and told people how deeply they were loved? What if instead of jumping off of wooden ships and reading the history of the world or telling people that you're gonna die tonight and you're gonna go to hell, what if we could just say, God is here? Can you see him? Good news is showing up someplace and pointing out to anyone listening that he's already here. Caesar said this last week. He's already in love with you. He doesn't need to travel with me. He's here because you are here. That's good news. He's never far. That's gospel. He doesn't require ships and passports and language learning to speak the language of your heart. It's built deep into your operating system. You know where home is. Oh, I want to be that kind of an evangelist. I want to be that kind of a person. This commission, properly understood, calls for no destruction of previous witness, no destruction of previous existing knowledge of God. It doesn't require anything to be destroyed. Even, even if it's extra textual, it's okay, guys, because God speaks the language of love. This great commission says go everywhere with what you have and live this way. Don't destroy. There's no need. Build on the awareness of God. You see, because eventually my experience and yours can be woven together into a fabric that neither of us can deny. We belong to God and we belong to one another. I dream of a day when we are characterized by wide eyes instead of clenched fists. When we are alive in a world that is full of the presence of God. Oh, church, this you won't need to read an article in the Atlantic to know this is true, but the taproot of evangelicalism is rotten all the way down. We've transacted this in the wrong way and it's time to move forward. I don't hate those roots, but guys, we have to move forward. We have to offer something that's truly good. These compounded mixtures of American culture and gospel are noxious to me now, I'm sorry, they are. They never traveled as well as we thought. It's time for something different. What does that look like? A Couple of ideas. Allison spent her whole week helping immigrant children get signed up for school. I know people in my family who would say, you're wasting your time because you're not preaching the gospel to these people. Guess what? Those kids are lost in a lost world. They have no idea how to sign up for school. Their moms can't read. Their moms can't sign. They don't know what this paper is. And we're trying to get these kids into school because this is what the gospel does. You live among people. You infiltrate that space of safety and you just be witness to how loved they are and how welcome they are. It's not, the, it's not changing the whole world, but it is for those eight families. Help one now working around the world in indigenous spaces, not leading campaigns, trying to get people to convert, but doing the hard work of restoring young women plucked out of sex trafficking in Peru. That's the kind of work that I think is, 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 is what the church ought to be doing. I dream of a day 
when we don't shift around our, our resources trying to buy more decisions of faith? What's the ROI on this investment? And we can just say, being in the world and teaching people how to love, this is what we're called to do. I have a friend in this very church who was a missionary in the Middle East, and his home church called him back and said, we don't see enough decisions for faith in your work. He's like, I'm building civil infrastructure. I'm teaching people how to farm and do water and do community. And they say, nope, we need more decisions of faith or else it's for us, it's not about the gospel. We can do better, guys. We can do better than that. So if you're an MK or a missionary or you're related to one and you wonder, do we have a call to cross borders and boundaries with the gospel? You bet we do. You bet we do, but it better be good news that we're taking. It better be good news that we're taking. Is there a missionary call for the church? There is no church without it. But we have to be careful to what we take when we go. It's gotta be good news. And it's gotta be that God is here. Join me in prayer. Musicians, you can find your way. The rest of you guys, the light's now dim and you stand to your feet. It's like a little, little uh, thing we do every week. I don't know how deep into any of this thinking you are. I don't know if these thoughts occur to you. I don't know if any of this resonates because you've always felt awkward about that same reduction or that same power, marriage of gospel and power. I don't know if this resonates with you, but trying to find a, a way through this. We are a sent people. I just don't want to go the way I used to go. That's all. There's a new way to go. And I wonder if this morning you would be willing to just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you in what way that, what does that look like for you? What's the fabric you're already woven into socially? You say, I don't know what God's asking me to do. I don't know what God's calling me to do. Where, where are you already? How do you come alive in that place? How do you bear witness to good news in that place? That's the question. I don't want the years back. Thanks, it's been a great journey. I thank all those years for getting me here. I just want us to move forward in a way that understands the difference between the culture that wraps around the gospel and the gospel itself, that's all. So pray with me.